Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Revamped Founder. In this episode, we have Kristen, who is the founder of Moonrise, joining us. She is building the future of learning, homeschooling and the future of education. In this episode, we talk about the importance of homeschooling, what is wrong with the current educational system, and what does the future of schooling look like, how can the modern parents create the next Steve Jobs, Elon Musk and create the best founders and the people who change the world. That's all from my side. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you. So, hey Chris, how are you? It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast and I hope it will be an incredible episode. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I want to kick this interview off. Like, you built 10 rocket not in rocket 10 rocket then if you switch from building apps to revolutionizing the learning or educational industry so how did that come about let's see i mean i've always believed in solving problems that i personally experience so i started 10 rocket because funny enough i was trying to build an education app as somebody who didn't know how to code. So I had this idea for an app that allowed kids to track their creative portfolio, kind of like a LinkedIn for creativity to replace the transcript, right? So I, I, even at that time, I thought grades were a very poor way to measure learning or progress. And that it seems like what matters in the world is what you've built and what you've done. And it seemed odd that there wasn't really a way for kids to track the things that they've done. And so this idea for giving them prompts for things to do and then track their progress through a portfolio was the idea. Um, and you know, since I didn't know how to code, I started calling people who knew how to code to see what it would take to build it. And you know, I would get quotes usually in the, in the range of 100 to $150,000 and about six months of time to build it. And at the time I was working for a nonprofit making like I, think I was making $30,000 a year or something like that. And I was like, man, this kind of sucks. Like, I think I'd be a really good founder and that this could work. But, you know, I, I don't have this money and, you know, I don't know anybody on the investment side. So it just felt like there was this big barrier to being a founder. And, uh, you know, so I said, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll just learn how to code. So I learned how to code. I went through a coding boot camp and that was $10,000, which I thought was a lot better than $150,000. And, you know, I built a minimum version of this app as like a not very good programmer in 10 days. And then I thought, well, what could really good developers build in 10 days? Like, I bet they could build like a fully functioning app in 10 days if we had the right scoping process. So I pitched that idea to a group of people at a startup event. There was a guy in the crowd who said he'd be my first customer. And, uh, Went home to my wife and said, can I turn this into a company? She said, yes, just get more clients. <laughs> and we wound up building 50 apps over three years. And then along the way, I had kids. And this is the you know kind of long-winded answer to your original question. We started looking at you know how they were going to learn and how we were going to raise them. So when my son turned preschool age, you know, we started looking around. And it was really bizarre to me that, you know, since that original idea to like build something creative in education, like 
even with how much things have changed on the internet, like access to information is everywhere, right? Like Duolingo and YouTube and all this stuff. Like, like I was like, surely schools would be taking full advantage of this and changing. But, you know, we walked into some of the best private schools in the city. Some of these would charge, you know, $20,000 a year to send, you, to send each kid there. And they looked almost exactly the same as what I remembered <laughs> when I went to school. You know, there was a there was one that we went into again. This this was I think this one was eighteen thousand dollars, and there was a group of six year olds spelling cat on a chalkboard. You know, it was just so bizarre to see that coming from the world of tech, and being really deeply troubled by that as somebody who cares a lot about human development and also being a father. So, you know, I kind of went through this six month process where I said, what would it actually look like to fix this? Because a lot of people have tried to fix it. You know, and so I didn't presume to just think like, oh, yeah, my first idea is going to be right. You know, so I, I came up with this theory that, you know, really school hasn't changed because they have a monopoly on being a space to drop your kids off during the day. So. If you're a, if you're a parent and you need to work, that means you need, you know, unless you're working from home and even when you're working from home, you need space from them. Like basically you need a place to where they can go learn and make friends during the day. Right. But the only place you can do that is a school. And that's really weird, right? Like think about all the places we can work as adults, right? Like, well, you're not an adult yet, but, <laughs> but adults, uh, you know, have coffee shops and co-working spaces and hotel lobbies and offices. So there's this like huge variety, but kids only have schools. And, you know, you pretty much have to send them there the full day and you can't send them there part of the day, right? Or, or none of the days. And so, so anyway, um, you know, it kind of just came from this authentic need where I said, what would it look like to build a different place for kids to go and learn and make friends during the day? Like, if it wasn't a school, like, what would it be? And I said, it'd probably be called a co-learning space. And it'd be a lot like these co-working spaces like we work. Um, and that was it. So, you know, I just, I really fundamentally think that that should exist in the world. And if you do that, it builds the foundation for a new education system. Like, we work for children. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. No. Why, why do you think that an average person does not put so much thought into the child's education and just follows the status quo? That's a great question. Um, I don't think this is unique to education. I think most people, until they're faced with like a like a big enough problem. I don't think most people spend a lot of time questioning like the defaults of the world around them. So this is another way of saying most people kind of like take the world for granted and don't really like push against it very much. And so, you know, like whatever the media says, like that's the input or, you know, whatever the options are for transportation. Like think, think about how many people just, took it for granted that taxis were the way that we would get around outside of your car right, or buses, right? Like you just kind of take what society gives you. And most people are like that, you know, because it takes a tremendous amount of energy. And I think also some ingrained uh, rebelliousness to push against those things. Right. Um, so, you know, education, pe people say things like, you know, I went through it, you know, I turned out fine. Uh, I don't see any better alternatives out there and I'm not going to build one. And I know how challenging that is. So it, it's not like they're bad people. It's just, a, it's a really hard problem to solve. And it's shocking to me that Moonrise is the first of this variety of things. Like everybody up until this point seems to have tried to build different types of schools 
and even in, with that, even the, the most progressive people in education, the people who have taken a stance against the status quo are still building variants of the thing, right? Variants of the thing that already exists. So they're building better taxis instead of Uber, basically. <laughs> so yeah, is Moonrise more or less expensive this than private school? So at the moment, it's substantially less expensive than most private schools. Uh, so Moonrise today is 250 bucks a month per kid. We are focused on homeschoolers. Homeschoolers tend to not need full-time, by definition, right? they don't need full-time childcare. Um, so before Moonrise, let, let's say Moonrise, and, and this is true for most cities aside from, from our location, right? Like homeschoolers spend most of their time at home. Um, so by definition, this is a group of people who don't need, like they don't fundamentally need childcare in order to decide to homeschool. Like they have chosen to, most of the time one parent uh, stays home or maybe increasingly like one parent works from home, right? But they don't need fundamentally in order to decide to homeschool uh, a, a place for their kids to go and learn, right? Like they don't, they don't need the childcare component um, in the sense of like it being a, a need like water, right? They do need it in the sense like that they need uh, companionship and that sort of thing. It's kind of like that level of the need where it's so much of a, of an unfortunate thing that they have to give up when they pull their kids out of school, that when we present this to them and we give their kids a place to learn and make friends outside of home, it's very popular with them. But that's why we're able to do that at the moment for that price point, because the average parent does not need full-time childcare. Um, I said that that's how we are today because we have ambitions to allow for more levels of utilization all the way up to full-time utilization in the future. Um, but right now we're focused on, on this segment. And what are these utilizations? So ultimately, I mean, it's, it's hard to say what the far distant future will look like, but in the near term future, which, you know, for lack of a better word, might be thought of as like my lifetime, there will be, there will, there, I, I expect there will always be a need for some parents to work full time, not in their house. Like think that I feel pretty confident in that. So in that world, if we are trying to help those families, then the only way that we can help those families to exit school, like, so if we start from the default that school is, let's say, bad or wrong on first principles or something like that, if we want those families to choose Moonrise instead of whatever else they're using for their kids learning and upbringing, then we will need to have the ability to serve full-time utilization, meaning they drop their kids off basically for a full day, five days a week. Um, so, you know, we don't want to, uh, on the long tail of Moonrise, we, we don't want to turn those families away. We want to be able to serve them. So we have a lot of ideas on how to do that. But um, we're just starting with our biggest customer segment, which is the most underserved, and that's homeschoolers. Yeah, so uh, related to this point, now, we are seeing that people like Elon Musk and uh, Zuckerberg, mm -hmm. they are putting more effort into getting people to come into the office. So work from home might become a little less prevalent in the future. Mm -hmm. So do you think that will cause a meteoric rise to co-learning space? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the shift towards, I, I think of this as like, an, like the market went to remote work quickly because of COVID there was rapid experimentation with what that looked like because it was kind of forced in the same sense that 
homeschooling was a, was a bit forced on a lot of people, right? And then a, a pretty large percentage stuck around with homeschooling and a large percentage stuck around with remote work. And I think in both cases, what we're seeing is a blurring of those poles. So I think what we're saying is that like full-time in-office work with a commute is not ideal. And now we're seeing that full-time remote work with no in-person team interaction is not ideal. And what you want is flex, like a flexible in-between. Basically you want coercion free states. Like everything comes down to like coercion with me. <laughs> and I, I think with like philosophy, right? People don't like being forced to be in a place. So if they feel forced to be only located at home and working from home remotely, or if they feel forced to only be at the office, like a forced state goes against human nature. But if you have office environments where you have, let's say like the, the mandate is to be there two or three days a week, that still is a little bit of force. Um, but I think generally what you want is kind of like the flexibility to go between those two um, when it makes sense for you and the team. So um, I do think that the trend towards hybrid and remote work will definitely increase demand for homeschooling and thus for, for Moonrise, right? People want more flexibility in their schedules and parents are ultimately tied down to school calendars. So, you know, uh, the way that I always give this as an example is right now my family could just, if we wanted to, could just pick up and go to Rome for a month if we wanted to. Like, but, you know, my friends with kids in regular K through 12 schools can't do that. Um, so the desire to do that in a bunch of different ways outside of that example, I think will increase demand for a moonrise and for homeschooling. So you have friends which have the kids in K through 12 schools. Why have you not been able to convince them to join moonrise? That's a great question. So most of my, most of my friends, like let's, let's put this like into the realm of close friends, right? So, so, Quite a few of my close friends don't live near us and they don't use Moonrise. I can think of two friends close by that have kids in regular school. Uh, one is in public school and one is in a charter school. So the charter school family does currently need full-time care. Like they both work in an office. And so homeschooling's not, at least in the sense of where Moonrise is today, since we don't offer a full-time option, that's what's preventing them. The private school family, I mean, frankly, is just a little bit more conventionally minded. So this is a fancy way of saying not all of my friends think in the same way that I do. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I think a lot of homeschoolers have the experience of not even being able to convince their family that homeschooling is a good thing, you know? So we still have some pushback from most of my family is pretty understanding of all this, but the decision to homeschool, even within my family, with how much I've researched education, uh, it was still kind of met with a little bit of shock and awe when we first decided to do that. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. So do you think economic disparities will decrease the use or... Uh, uh, you, the use of uh, co-learning spaces, which is Moonrise. So, at least in the U.S., homeschooling has a pretty broad economic distribution. Um, there are quite a few low-income homeschool families. Um, I mean, if you think about this, it kind of makes sense, too, even from like a practical perspective, because a lot of homeschool families only have a single income, right? One parent is working. 
uh, and the other is staying home to homeschool. So the distribution of economics for homeschool families is pretty broad. We at Moonrise have a very broad uh, dispersion of, of economic situations. So we have families that are pretty low income and we have families that are really high income. So one of the good things about our price point is that it's popular with both. Like it's, it's still at 250 an accessible price point. And again, if you're homeschooling, the choice is basically like nothing, you know, they're, they're in the house with you all the time. Or if we happen to live near a homeschool co-op, maybe they go there. So a lot of families will do that. You know, maybe they'll go to like a church co-op or something like that. But, you know, Moonrise isn't even close to like private school prices around here, at least. Um, oh, sure. So I think your question was beyond Moonrise, though. It's like, you know, will economic, like, will, will it continue to be that way at scale, right? Like, will yeah. some economic factors uh, change the the number or, or maybe it's something like, will will the number of homeschoolers stay relatively stable because of some economic situation, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, the most, the, the biggest driver of that will be the, the idea that there's, there's a need for one parent to keep working, right? Or sorry, for, for both parents to keep working. Um, so the need for dual income is a blocker, assuming that they're not remote. So remote helps a lot because you can have dual income families that work remotely. So as long as one parent works remotely, then, you know, something like Moonrise becomes a possibility. Um, so I think that helps a lot. The other thing that I'll say from an economic standpoint is that at least in the U.S., there's a lot of states that are introducing education savings accounts, ESAs. So, you know, in Florida, they just passed this where uh, if you pull your kids out of public school, you get $8,000 per kid back from the state each year to spend however you want. Uh, so I believe there are six states with near universal um, education savings accounts right now. The, the two that are the most flexible, I think, are Arizona and Florida. Um, and in those states, you know, something like Moonrise would be free for those parents, uh, and then they'd have some left over. So that legislation is is growing incredibly fast. There's a company called Odyssey, which is venture backed, uh, run by a guy named Joe Connor. And the fact that that is venture backed shows the rate of progress. Like that company is built on a dependency on legislation in some regards, right? Um, so the fact that it's venture backed by Andreessen Horowitz to the extent that it is shows the optimism around ESAs, I think, expanding throughout the U.S. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we had, you know, 15 states in the next five years adopt ESAs. How long do you think uh, in a European world, let's say that all schooling is replaced by homeschooling? Interesting question. That is probably a combination of factors. So I'll dive into this a little bit. Uh, I think the the biggest factor that will ultimately drive uh, homeschooling is a 10x level improvement in learning outcomes. So here's an example of something that I think would be even stronger of an effect towards pushing people to homeschooling than COVID was. Uh, there are quite a few companies now that are working on AI tutors effectively. Um, it's pretty well known in education circles that the most effective learning or I guess education intervention is one-on-one -on -one work with, you know, quote unquote, like a master, right? Like uh, apprenticeships, one-on-one -on -one coaching, tutoring, like there's something called Bloom Sigma uh, that covers this, you know, where you can measure learning outcomes and their, and their efficacy. 
So most people in, edu in education circles know about this, right? And I think a good bit of the public knows just intuitively that like a one-on-one -on -one coach is gonna be way more effective than a group lecture. So AI is really interesting from this perspective because you can effectively have a one-on-one -on -one tutor in your pocket at all times. And that can, since it's run by software, be reduced incredibly, like that can basically be like almost free over enough time um, because of marginal cost being zero for distribution of software. Um, so once we have a digital one-on-one -on -one tutor in every kid's pocket in pretty much any subject, it's almost, oh, and I'll say, and something like Moonrise where they have a different place to go to learn during the day. In my view, it's almost irresponsible, assuming you have the, the, the money to send them there and to pay for those things. It's almost irresponsible not to do it because the outcomes are so much better. Like it's drastically better. So when those two things happen, I think you start to see a shift, especially like if those two things plus universal education savings accounts are in every state, I think those are the conditions to where it crosses 50% really quickly. Um, and you know what's funny is I think all three of those things are happening within the next 20 years. Um, like that's even possibly conservative. Um, but if we're talking about like the majority of states having ESAs and that level of tech for pretty much any subject, um, I think 20 years is, is about right. So that's not crazy, right? I'll be less than 60 when that happens. <laughs> uh, so, you know, like how old's Tesla now? Like Tesla's about 20 years old, I think. So, yeah. you know, most people still don't have Teslas. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's my answer. I think it's probably something like we'll cross the 50% barrier in the next 20 or 30 years. Why do you think will government kind of uh, give incentives to children or parents for leaving public school? Why is that? Oh, um, that's a complicated question, but I think I have an answer for it. It's a really good question. Like, so why do governments incentivize people to leave public schools, right? Um, governments are effectively, you know, like we have a representative government here. So, you know, an elected official represents the public and the public is increasingly demanding these options in these states. So, uh, the states where this is happening are, you know, places like Arizona, West Virginia, Florida, those are like three just off the top of, you know, Idaho is another one. So these are very pro-freedom states. Like there's pending legislation in, in Texas too, right? So um, the population is increasingly disappointed with public education, but their tax dollars, so they're uh, quite a bit of their tax dollars, about $13,000 per kid per year uh, is spent. And it's even higher, like Chicago is about 30. Um, tax dollars are going to funding public education that they are increasingly not wanting to use. And the way that this translates down into the political pipeline is if you don't fix this, I'm not gonna vote for you. So elected officials have like skin in the game in the sense that they want to remain in office. And so they are creating policies that help to address those concerns uh, for those parents and those families. Um, that is a well-functioning democracy in the sense that it works that way. Now, from a, dollars and cents perspective what's happening is that they don't get the full amount of their tax dollars back right so in georgia it's about thirteen thousand dollars per year uh if we were to pass the legislation that was that's currently on uh 
presentation, like on the docket, if you will, uh, we would only get $6,000 per kid back. So a little less than half. So what that means is that I, as a homeschooler, I'm not using any of my education tax dollars. Um, and the state would only give me six back if per kid, if it passed, meaning that they get to still keep a good bit of the tax dollars to spend on public education, even though I'm not using it. That's an interesting point. And I don't think public education will vanish completely. That I don't think is possible. Yeah, I mean, the the way that ESAs are going is that, you know, basically, like, it, it becomes public funded education, but not public run education. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I do see a world where in the distant future, like, I, I don't think public education will disappear in my lifetime, um, to your to your point. But I, I can see a future where it just becomes like, so hard for the government to do it as effectively as technology. Um, I think I think a more likely thing that'll happen is maybe Moonrise would see some competition from schools in the sense that they stop the learning aspect of it and they instead say, okay, well, we have these schools with gyms and classrooms. So let's just like outsource the technology learning side of things and we'll just provide the space. I could see that being a world that exists in the future. Um, but it's gonna be really hard for like lecture-based public run education formats to compete with like one-on-one -on -one tutors in your pocket, you know? It's already hard for them to compete with YouTube and Khan Academy and that sort of thing. It's just, they, they have a kind of forced monopoly on that because they're the only ones that provide space. Yeah, now you mentioned, we were talk, talking a lot about schools and learning. So what is the difference between education and learning? Yeah, good question. Uh, so I harp on this a lot. Uh, I think you and I even <laughs> talked about this before the podcast a little bit in kind of the, the pre-prep notes, but... I tend to think the simplest explanation is education is a thing that's done to you and learning is an internal thing that you as a human being do. Uh, it is a default state of being a human, meaning that is, it is impossible for a human not to learn. Um, like humans are, are effectively learning machines in the sense that we have a creative brain that we don't know how to replicate in anything artificial, right? So we know how to recreate biology and biological processes in a lab but we don't know how to recreate the the human mind namely like the creative engine that causes learning to happen uh we don't know how to create that even artificial intelligence is not doing this today it's doing a really fancy you know version of uh pattern recognition which doesn't do it justice it's quite amazing technology but it's not the human mind uh, not even close to agi yet or anything like that okay so that's the simplest definition um I guess that answers your question, right? Like, yeah. like learning at a fundamental level, like, is a process of guesses. And based, you might think of it as like shots on goal, right? Like, I'm going to try X, right? Or I think X. And then you get feedback from sensory observations, right? So it's like, there's a theory. And then you test that theory with something usually observation through your senses and then you get data back like information back so you open your eyes there's an inborn theory you see that uh that crying causes milk to arrive in your milk in your mouth and that theory <laughs> is then reinforced right until it's not anymore right and this this happens in a number of of different ways right it's basically like theory uh feedback and then new theory and feedback, and there's a test in between those two. So um, 
that that's kind of how learning works. Uh, it's not how education works, though. No, I I ask the same question to you. I ask this to Michael too, actually. So what we see in learning, and especially he was he is in Socratic learning. So it means question everything. Mm -hmm. There's a very popular chart which shows how much you know, how much you don't know, mm -hmm. how, how much you don't know, that you don't even know. So there's structure is missing in learning. There's no specified structure that you have to learn this, 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 this. Whereas in education or the schooling system, public schooling system or private school system, they teach uniformly whatever they think has to be taught but neither of these are like part of the what you don't even know chart but so how do you think can, can we battle that because after seeing that chart i am super paranoid that i know this but what if i don't know what really behind the, the main thing behind this <laughs> um okay that's a really, these are great questions. Um, okay, so I'm going to say something to answer this that is going to sound bad, but is actually very good. Uh, the amount that you don't know, the number of things that you don't know will always be infinite, right? Like there will always be infinitely more that you don't know than you do know, right? That's the, that sounds bad, right? Um, yeah. There's no such thing as knowing everything to be known ever, like all information, that sort of thing, right? Uh, the good news is that there's no limit to what you can know, right? Like, aside, like, like the theory of things that are known are explanations about the world and the universe around us, right? So even things that you think you quote unquote know are just the best theories that we have today. But there are so many unsolved problems in the universe, like how to, I mean, even the ones that are within the scope of, of what we know today, like how to create digital intelligence, right? Like once you figure that out, there are a whole bunch of new problems that come from that, that you didn't have before, right? Like humans have never had the problem of like, once we have digital digital intelligence how do we expand digital intelligence to throughout the universe right like we've never had that problem you don't even know to think about that problem right like there are infinitely more problems on the other side of a, of a given problem that's solved right so every new problem creates more problems than the original one right so there's always infinitely more of those right but that doesn't stop you from wanting to know things to help you solve problems in the real world today right like the pro one of the problems with school is that it teaches you to like think of learning as like information collection in case you'll ever need it. And the real world doesn't work that way at all. The real world is like, here's a, here's a real thing, right? Like I have not expanded Moonrise to the world yet, right? Like I want there, if I had a magic button that I could press, there would be 10,000 Moonrise locations all over the world and all of it would operate beautifully and it would fully replace the education system. And it, it would be an exact version of my vision, but hopefully including things that I haven't even figured out or thought about yet, right? Like that is a really meaningful problem that I am actively working on, sol on solving. And in order to solve it, I have to learn a whole bunch of things like a whole bunch of things that I don't know today. There's, there's like 
20,000 problems that I have to solve for that to happen. And that button would just presumably solve all of them, right? Um, so there is context for me to learn those things because I desire, I am really deeply interested in solving that problem. Um, but I don't have the same desire to learn about how underground plumbing works, you know? And I don't care to, to really have that desire for like intricate details about cellular structure or the periodic table of elements. Like those problems don't have meaningful context in my life today. But if I ever want to, like if I ever want to do something in chemistry, let's say I get really interested in life extension, right? Then I'm going to start caring a lot about cellular structure. And the information is there for me to work on those problems. But the thing that's actually going to cause that is the deep interest in solving that problem, right? And school just assumes that you care about these problems and they don't give you the context for why you should care about those problems, right? So I, I think most of the job of anything in education is to create and help people find meaningful problems to work on. And then the information is there. Like you need to provide the motivation and the space and the information and the rest, you know, with guidance kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, no, no you you're deeply interested in physics. I saw yes. that, yes. that tweet from you. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I am. Yep, same here. Let's take, for example, physics. Anything, like Newton's laws. Now, when you are in school, they know that where to start from to teach it to you well. Or if not well, that depends. But when you're learning by itself, what, how, how do you, or where to start? That's yes. the biggest problem. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't think there's a single answer to that. Like, I think part of the learning process is a search process. Like, there's no one answer to, like, how to, how to start physics, right? It's kind of like it really depends on the individual and what they're interested in, right? Like, so different physics problems have different things. I mean, you, you might say that it starts literally with a search, right? Like... Uh, I don't know the information I need, but I'm going to put some things out there into the world to try to find it. So maybe it's like a chat GPT prompt or it's a, it's a query on Google or it's a email to a mentor or it's a request from a parent, but your search, it's, it's a search for answers, right? Um, like it's not a textbook. <laughs> it's not a single YouTube video. It's not a class. Like it's a search and there's no authority source on, on information that can say always start here, which is what school kind of attempts to do, right? It's like an averaging effect where it's saying, hey, given a broad interest in physics, maybe start with Newton's laws or something like that. Um, but it's totally provided outside of context and it tries to provide context with grades, right? Like here's why you should care about this problem because if you don't care about this problem, you're gonna fail. Um, so what that causes is a, a, a right, a correct response where that information is learned very temporarily such that you can pass the class and then it's immediately forgotten once your problem is solved right so the whole edifice of school is basically like solving the short-term problem of getting grades so that you can then move on to the next problem of getting grades in the next thing what do you think can we use to test the knowledge because exams are not considered a good thing these days so what what do you think we can use instead of exams so one of the most helpful 
I guess, mental models that I have for learning is to not consider there to be a fundamental difference in human beings. I think this is an error <clears throat> that we make similar to the error that we made by thinking that people of different skin colors uh, have different states of being a human, right? So one of the errors is considering kids a different type of human, right? So the reason I bring this up is you and I don't, well, I guess you're still in school. Um, when, when you become an adult, there's no such thing as testing your knowledge. Like there's no structure of, of testing new things that you've learned other than the things that you're able to build and do in reality. So it's more a question of agency. Like what does the not knowledge gives you power, right? Over yourself, over your circumstances, you know, as human beings kind of increasingly over nature and our surroundings. And so to me, the, the test of knowledge is the growth of agency, uh, which is another way of saying like things that you're capable of doing. Um, if somebody is learning piano, what you would like to see is an advancement in the things that they're able to play on that instrument. Uh, if somebody is starting a company, you'd like to see them advance in the complexity and uh, I guess alignment with personal interests of the companies that they're able to start. Other than that, you're really testing memory, right? So, so most grades are testing short-term memory, and you know when you when you take a college exam, most of the time they're not testing the things that you've learned in in fifth grade, right? Um, so, so that's why I mean it's mostly about short-term memory. You you do have a stacking of memory, right? So there are things where where memory builds upon itself, and there's kind of lower branches of of things that you have to remember. But all the things that are worth remembering are things that have context in in your life. So most people, you know, like once you learn how to drive, you drive a lot. It's an important thing to learn. If you took a test about driving, and then suddenly had to to drive you know, 10 years later, nobody would know how to drive. <laughs> so that, that's kind of a long-winded way of answering your question. But I, I think it's, you know, what are you trying to do like that, that matters um, for, for measuring learning? And then in that case, you know, most of the time it's quite obvious whether or not you can do those things to some degree of mastery. So you mentioned a part about that tests or exams don't really matter in adult life. But there's a misconception or uh, thinking that school prepares children for adult life by putting the almost equivalent amount of pressure on them, which they can handle when they get into the workforce or leave school, actually. What do you think? Is that true? Or what are your thoughts on that? So I think this is similar to the question of people liking that school is not an ideal like it's an admission that school is not an ideal environment and this is kind of like the life is tough argument right yeah like life is tough school is tough therefore school prepares you for tough times is that right yeah um if that's what you're saying then you know re reality is accessible as long as we take kids out of school right so like so there are plenty of ways to engage in reality that are not putting people through artificial coercive environments. Um, in the sense that school is a forced environment that is not enjoyable um, and that that is hard, uh, that is a 
very foreign thing for most adults. Like most adults do not have forced environments that where they are subjected against their will to a battery of tests and bullies and that, and that sort of thing. Right. Um, a lot of people, so, so there are probably people who would argue with this by saying that jobs are like that. Um, but people leave jobs all the time. Um, it, and it doesn't mean that the next one that they go to is going to be perfect, but people have freedom to leave jobs. Now, they have less freedom to fully exit the job market. But in that case, they have the freedom to gain new knowledge, which helps them to advance up the level and uh, eventually, you know, maybe start their own thing or find a better position that they like, right? So so it's not the same kind of force, right? It's, it's an economic force. And even that, like most people, then you get into arguments like, well, you know, things used to be better, like we should all just live off the land. Freedom affords the ability for all of us to do that now. So people that complain about, you know, how things used to be so much better when we were in the agrarian age, those people have the freedom to get off their iPhones, to sell their cars and go live off the land. They don't do that because they like what we have now better, right? Um, so this idea that like we're forced into the modern economy, I think is false too, right? We all like having these things and we choose to work so that we can afford the things that society provides us. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible point. Like this, a lot of people believe this narrative, a lot of parents actually. But yeah, incredible. So what do you, what do you think was different from the education or learning that happened in the primitive era that can be applied to how we learn today? Primitive era, like pre-enlightenment or caveman or, or something like that? <laughs> uh, I think before the industrial revolution okay so pre-enlightenment yeah um so pre-enlightenment there were still like I, I guess we had more of a trade-based um educational structure most people learned by doing um it was forced in a bad in a, in a different sense in the sense that like if your parents were farmers you were likely to be a farmer and it, it was very hard to advance past that just because you weren't exposed to the sorts of people and opportunities to to get past that there really was a limitation on knowledge back then because we didn't have the internet right uh and even from a sense of books like one of the reasons why the major industry uh industrialists like carnegie uh were so important they, they built libraries and that was really important because that was the main way of accessing knowledge right so you know i'm not suggesting that we should go back to this for those reasons on their own merits. Uh, I, I guess the thing that we can learn is that it was much more about learning by doing. So a lot of the smartest people and most successful people in history were apprentices at a very young age. Um, so I think Carnegie sold papers, if I remember correctly, when he was 14. Uh, Steve Jobs, even you know, in modern times, was like emailing the founder of HP at a young yeah. age, asking about computer parts. Um, giving young children agency and challenge at a young age, I think is something that we can definitely learn. We, we have more of a coddling society now where we artificially constrain their environments and then kind of drop them into the real world, you know, when they, when they turn 22, usually it's after, it's after college now. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons other than outside of the realm of founders. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why you see fewer young people doing remarkable things. Um, you go back and look at the you know how the, the age of some of these people that signed the declaration of independence they were they were very young relative to what you would imagine most politicians are today that make major legislative changes um and i think that's part of it they just had to you know do harder things at a younger age so that would be 
my contribution is helping you know children have more agency by doing things that are hard uh another way of saying that is allowing them to work like uh you know child labor laws were built around a time where we still had you know machines and factories that were very dangerous if you think about knowledge work there there's no danger you know inherent in doing knowledge work at a young age so kids should be programming and designing and you know making youtube videos and that sort of thing it's a great way to gain agency right now yeah so how should we actually teach children to face hardships because if we, everything is accessible then they get used to the cushy life or something like that how do you create an environment like that how do you create an environment that gets children used to hardship yeah i don't i don't think i would start the question there and it's not a bad question i just so like i think that starts from the premise that different types of environments need to be specifically designed for that purpose for children um first of all i i disagree that with the with the idea that all adults by den of of the structure of society have to face constant hardship like i think i think if you look at this point in history even though people complain a lot there is less human suffering and hardship than at any time prior so you know hardship itself is a moving target so this goes into the same idea of having a societal construct of what's important to teach children like society moves when when we make progress and it's moving at an accelerated pace because technology is pushing progress ever faster so if you were to design something to force children into a situation where they had to deal with hardship um by the time they got out the definition of hardship may have moved or it may be that fewer people hopefully have to go through hardship so i i think there's also an important point here too about the difference between you know suffering and hardship and challenge so you do want environments that are very challenging um but reality is challenging and you know kind of the the fundamental I guess dividing line between school and reality is the need to create value, right? So people have this impression that kids can't create value until they reach a certain age. And now all of a sudden they can, and I just fundamentally disagree with that. So, so I think introducing ways for kids to make, uh, to create value at a young age will therefore create the sort of challenges that we adults have to face. And maybe at that age, they're doing things that are less desirable for creating value than they will be 20 years later. But that's what adults face when we graduate. Most people start off in a job or a profession that we don't like as much, and we're in a battle to get to, towards something that we, where we create value and we really like it. Yep, so hardship is a challenges. It is a relative term. Relative, and I, I don't think forcing people into bad environments is a good thing. <laughs> like, I don't think we should I don't think we should force hardship because of some false idea that that's going to prepare them. Like the real world has challenges. Like what you want are meaningful problems. You don't want forced hardship. Like that's a bit like slavery, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's different than slavery in the sense that there's an end goal where, you know, there, there's an exit out of it. Right. But at least while they're in that situation, that would be like saying slavery is justified because when they get out of it, then, you know, they'll have, uh, been used to hardship and therefore better citizens or something like that. Like nobody would ever justify that for adults. So why is that? Like why have you, why do you think that some children have 
more drive than others? I mean, the, the shortest and most direct answer is that humans are different and we have different interests. Um, even when you watch a television show, you are solving problems. Like you're modeling the problems of the characters uh, in that show. And you are using the creative capacity of your brain to create that problem in your own mind. And it wouldn't be an interesting show. Like imagine just watching a video of a paperclip standing still. That would be a really boring show because you don't have any problems to solve. Right? It's just sitting there. So it's not interesting. Um, I tend to think what's happening when people think of drive is they assign drive to things that like we all kind of collectively agree are important and move society forward. So, you know, somebody may be really driven to watch YouTube videos all day and somebody may be really driven to solve quantum physics in some meaningful way to push, you know, maybe com quantum computation forward. Right. And we tend to assign societal importance to the latter because it has a positive impact for the rest of us. Whereas watching YouTube videos does not typically. Um, although Mr. Beast would be an interesting counterpoint where he started off, you know, watching and getting obsessive about YouTube videos and, you know, kind of became this prolific creator. Right. So that would not have looked to anyone other than Mr. Beast. Like he was doing something really productive and creative, but obviously we, we know now that he, that he was. Um, so, but I, but I do, th so I, I think people are driven to solve meaningful problems. I think that's universal. Um, the definition of what problems they find meaningful is based on interest. And that's very different and highly variant between, uh, between people. They mentioned the part about quantum physics. So I think one question came to my mind. Do you think geniuses exist? Because like we saw, for example, Einstein or Newton, do you think they were genius? If that's even a thing or were they just like you mentioned, driven to solve a problem. I think they were driven to solve a problem. They got so interested in that, that they became obsessed with it. And when you become obsessed with something, you over enough time find limitations to what's already known. Because if it was already known, there wouldn't be a problem, right? So they became obsessed with the disparity or the discrepancy between what was known about physics and some observation that they were making, some theory that they had. Right. And it just it's it's kind of like a mystery. Right. It, it's it's almost identical to a mystery, like like reading a novel. There was a gap in the knowledge there where they they had a theory that contradicted with whatever the mainstream was. And there was no knowledge between those two things that was sufficient to solve that mystery. So they had the interest to learn the things that they needed to learn to solve that problem. And they did have the creative capacity to solve it. So if there is if there is a genius level there somewhere, it's that they had the creative capacity to overcome the lack of knowledge and create that knowledge in, in the world. Now, this then gets into questions of, was there something inherent in Einstein that allowed Einstein to creatively solve that lack of knowledge that somebody else would not have been able to? Um, and I personally don't think that there is because that would require some specific definition of genius that we don't have. So to me, it's a bad explanation. Like if genius were quantifiable, it, it's a bit like what's happening in AI right now. Everybody is saying, oh, AI is eventually going to be, you know, human level intelligent. And then if you ask them how or why, right, there, there's no good theories there. It's some kind of like a slippery slope argument like, oh, this is getting better over time. And therefore, like it'll eventually replace humans. But that's that's not a good explanation, right? Otherwise, we would be able to do it now, right? 
So something will happen along the way where we where we have a theory, and that theory creates AGI, right? Um, and I think that's how people think of genius or uh, IQ is that there's just something that crosses the chasm that Einstein had and, and others didn't, but nobody is specific about what that is. Like, is it some kind of like a, like a gene? Uh, you know, it doesn't seem to be. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, there's a guy, Steve uh, HSU, however you pronounce his last name. I think it's Shu uh, that has some interesting ideas about genius um, where it gets a little bit into the genes. Um, you know, I personally don't agree with it, but I do think his points are kind of interesting. Um, I, I can't articulate them perfectly here, but um, he does a good interview with, uh, I think it was uh, Darmesh, Dwarmesh, um, who runs the Lunar Society podcast. Uh, um, yeah. Anyway, he has some interesting theories about genius. But yeah, I don't personally subscribe to it. I think every human is inherently capable of solving interesting problems with enough obsession. Yep, that's... What do you think differentiates how the so-called geniuses learn and the rest of the society learns? Uh, I think the primary distinction is, is that they pick different problems to solve. Um, you know, look at collectors. Paul Graham has a really good essay about collectors. Uh, People who collect stamps are just as obsessed with collecting stamps as I am about fixing the education system, <laughs> you know, but at the other end of that obsession, they're just going to have a lot of stamps in their house, <laughs> you know? Uh, so what's the difference? Like they're really interested in stamps and I'm really interested in freeing children. <laughs> they, if, if you had them on your podcast to talk about stamps, they would tell you, a bunch of things you've never even considered about stamps and it would be super interesting but then you would both walk away from that and society would be none the richer other than the momentary interest <laughs> in that right but what i would hope is that if some human being 30 years from now if i died today if some human being 10 years from now whatever listens to this podcast i would say some and they're interested in education and, and uh, fixing it and freeing children i would hope that some of these ideas that i share after thinking about it a lot would help them to advance the cause themselves right i'm hoping that i'm creating new knowledge that helps push us forward in that way even if my specific company doesn't end up being the one that solves it now you mentioned the part about the that moonrise will not cannot be the only one so do you think that we know that it will be a commutative effort from a lot of different organizations. Do you think a certain global organization like the United Nations, not exactly, but which controls or regulates all the education in all the 193 countries, mm -hmm. do you think something like that should exist? Uh no, that's pretty close to the opposite of what I think should exist. Uh, so, you know, having centralized control over lots of countries and therefore billions of people um, is a is a recipe for disaster. Um, it's it's not even like authoritarianism. It is authoritarianism. Uh, so, if you think about what's happening there, that is just about equivalent to mind control. Uh, except for human beings are creative, right? So what's happening is you have a centralized body of bureaucrats 
with no skin in the game for these decisions, presumably they can all exit their own education systems. Uh, so their own children aren't even being subjected to these things. And then they are deciding the things that people should learn. They are deciding how people should learn, the environments they should learn in, and what constitutes the idea that they've learned those things. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. That is happening. Like today, that's happening. That's what's happening in the United States with, uh, with public education. You have centralization of bureaucrats. Now, we, we do allow it at the state level to some degree. So there is a little bit more localism. But everybody kind of plays by the same rules. You know, where we have public education, there's a set of bureaucrats that decides what people should learn and what the environment should be. Um, and then they decide, you know, what constitutes the, the idea that learning has happened. So homeschooling, if you think about what it is, is the exact opposite of that. It puts yeah. control into the, you know, into the hands of families. Um, unschooling takes that even further. So I think unschooling, at least philosophically, is the most aligned with what I'm saying, because unschooling puts that control in the mind of the individual. Even homeschooling, which I'm very much in favor of, uh, still has a bit of authoritarianism as a parent, right? Uh, where the parent is deciding what goes into the mind of the child and um, what their environment is and that sort of thing. Um, but that is much more localized than anything involving a school um, or, you know, a set of bureaucrats. So now you mentioned the part about homeschooling, which uh, gives a lot of authority to the parents. But then wouldn't the learning be limited to the knowledge of the parents? Or the or there will be no new space to what, foster new ideas at home? So parents are not usually the source of information. Any form of schooling is typically not the source of the information. So schools don't create the knowledge that they quote unquote transmit to kids that's not how it works but that's how they think it works right um so schools are big buildings typically or not always so let's just let's say that there's for this conversation or this this part of the conversation there's no let's say there's no difference between you know charter public private schools and the schools are just buildings uh with a curriculum that curriculum is built on existing knowledge that they curate and transmit and hold people accountable for. So parents are the same way. Like parents are not creating the information. I didn't create, you know, basic geometry uh, or anything like that, right? So, so what I'm doing is I'm finding information, I'm curating it. And I think what you're getting at is that there is some activity involved with taking that information and bundling it in such a way that hopefully it sticks with our kids, right? Now, then the question is, if you believe that, who is more likely to be able to get that information to stick? And not only that, even if you believe that parents are bad about that, do you believe that they shouldn't be allowed to try, right? Because if, I mean, there's plenty of countries that disallow or, or make illegal um, homeschooling for this reason. They're so convinced of the ability of teachers to be able to transmit this knowledge meaningfully that they forbid parents from doing it. Right. Um, so, you know, in cases like this where it's potentially up for debate, then what most people do when they're being earnest is they look at the data and the data around homeschooling is much better. It's the most effective learning outcome as, as far as schooling measures are concerned. They perform better than charter public and private schools. Um, so now then you could say, what about a bad homeschool parent? Right. 
But then, by that same definition, you should not allow bad schools to exist. And there are plenty of bad schools that have much more moral problems than bad homeschoolers, right? Um, so, so all these things fall apart by comparison. Like if, if you shouldn't be allowed to homeschool because some parents are bad at teaching, then you shouldn't allow bad schools to exist. And you sh certainly shouldn't fund them millions of dollars, right? Uh, which is what's happening. Yep. So, so we uh, related to this topic actually with Michael. Uh, we talked about that government should completely be removed from being a part of education. So do you think the like Joe Biden's line that these are our children, our kids? So do you think that is correct? Um. Listen, I like I'm a libertarian philosophically, but not politically. Like a lot of people, a lot of people in my circle are very much like true, tried and true libertarians, borderline anarchist, right? And I, I tend to think that the United States, as far as countries go, mostly does a good job at the institutional level. Like institutional government is insanely hard and it should like people think it should move at the speed of startups. That's not the job of, a, of an institution like institutions should be a little bit conservative because they have so much impact over so many people. So, you know, people get frustrated at the speed at which governments move and in some degrees like infrastructure where there's more known problems like that should be much faster. Right. Major decisions about how kids learn should not be taken lightly, right? So all the things that I'm saying about Moonrise and learning, like, like I'm not suggesting that the government should just adopt all of Moonrise's ideas, like kill the public education system and fund Moonrise instead, right? What I do advocate for are things like ESAs, where they put that, they, they give those taxpayer dollars back to the parents, right? With, with, some, with some restrictions, um, you know, namely that they need to be used for, for educational purposes. If, if you ask me my my political opinion today, I'm not so much an anarchist or a pure libertarian that I think, you know, they shouldn't take our tax dollars at all. And instead, they should, you know, just let us spend it however they want. I do think that there's some institutional importance for making sure that the population is, uh, you know, taking care of our kids and, you know, helping them learn and that sort of thing. It's just that the way that we're doing it is very backwards, but I'm very encouraged by ESAs existing. So I think like the, the summary of that answer is that I'm okay with tax dollars being advocated for learning purposes, as long as parents have say in those tax dollars. Otherwise it's theft, right? Um, you know, we're taking this and we're gonna fund this thing that you don't like, right? Um, if, if you give them some level of control over those tax dollars, then I think that's fine. Um, I couldn't end up beating my words about that. I might change my mind about that, you know, with a smart argument from somebody, um, but at least right now, that's my stance. I think Isaac Asimov, I think his name is, I don't remember it. Yeah. He has some incredible ideas on what he said in accordance with his time about education. A lot of people can't think of that today, actually. He has some incredible books, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know he wrote Foundation, right? Um, yeah. I haven't actually read any of his books. A lot of people in kind of the startup circle have read a lot of Isaac Asimov. Um, I just haven't. Um, what what ideas do you like of his? Do you remember any specifically from uh, like do any come to mind? So it was written, I think, in the twentieth century, something like that. I don't remember the, the time period, but 
he talked about robotic learning at that time oh cool uh, see that that kind of that's kind of interesting but um, i personally not read a lot of books too mm. but i think like i should have them oh that's cool yeah i mean there's quite a few people who were very prescient about where society is moving once once we had computers a lot of people started putting the pieces together yeah uh, uh simor paypart i think wrote mindstorms i think that's his name um you know he kind of put the pieces together um you know maria montessori she was very very yeah. smart uh she got a lot of things right um most of my deepest philosophical underpinnings about you know the ideas around children and meaningful work like are are certainly inspired you know by some of her teachings um yeah there's a a guy named Ivan Illich who wrote about this i believe in the 70s like deschooling society uh pink yeah. floyd their most famous song uh <laughs> is about the factory schooling system yeah so you know this this was all very interesting to me starting moonrise because people have been saying this for decades upon decades and it's gotten worse not better uh whereas most things in society have gotten better so that was a big part of the uh intrigue around solving this problem now i want to ask a question about it just came to my mind related to philosophers mm-hmm. so i was talking to a, a person some i remember the other day he was we were talking about socrates he told me that don't mention socrates socrates ever to me i said why he said because he has he just thinks and speaks what he thinks but he has not actually done a lot of things hmm uh like he has not done anything practically so why should we listen to the guy i thought it was an interesting point i said i'll get back to you Sorry that is an interesting point i haven't heard that before i would argue that at the time of socrates he served a very important role um yeah. his culture was enlightenment before the enlightenment and we didn't have the internet and there was a premium on clear thinking which you might call philosophy and his ideas were translated like his ideas were written down and and i i may not transmitted like people were familiar with his ideas um so i would argue that he did do something in the sense that he formalized his thinking at a time when thinking was very important and that his work was to transmit ideas pre enlightenment and pre internet um it's a bit like essayists right like there are very smart people who write really good books um like uh one of my favorite thinkers today is david deutsch now david deutsch does do things in the world of physics but those things don't have much practical meaning in my daily life but his book the beginning of infinity fundamentally changed my world view um So as long as these people are communicating their ideas like Paul Graham is is very similar like he did a lot he started a company called Viaweb and then started Y Combinator but to me his most practical invention is his essays uh that's yeah. the thing that's had the most impact on my life so i i think writing down new ideas is very important as a function uh and it doesn't have to be translated into acting on those ideas because at those at that level the creation is in the essay and in the and in the knowledge creation is it related to this actually now we're talking about 
ideas getting passed down from generation to generation mm-hmm. so what school actually does is it teaches it in a uniform manner so that each child gets to know the bare minimum that there is required of them but uh, do you think that if a person learns by himself then how they receive the knowledge now they transmitted actually it would be different or it could be different how the rest of the society does do you think that can be a problem no because i think variance is a very good thing for progress um anytime you have standardization and homogenization across something like human minds but not just human minds like anything um it's anti progressive like uh so you know as far as we know there's two things that are capable of making progress in the universe like there's natural selection so basically like biological evolution and there's human minds right like those are the two and we're trying to make digital intelligence but effectively when those work that'll work like human minds as well right um so one of the mechanisms that caused that to work in both cases it is a variant like something is is conjectured like a new idea a new theory a new species a new uh a new uh butterfly wing or color on the butterfly wing something like that right uh and then it is criticized by being put into the world so that butterfly is normally red now it has a blue wing this human uh this human mind like wasn't aware of something called uh a computer and it writes down the idea of a computer right and then those things are either discarded or selected right so people like and work on the idea of a computer or that butterfly lives instead of dies and passes on its genes right um that is the engine of progress in both cases right so if you i i think your question was about like variant like is is variance in out in uh, in human minds because of like different learning environments a bad thing i think it's a very good yeah. thing the more variance you have the more uh you know shots on goal you have for selection right and then as long as we have good information spreading mechanisms which we do through the internet and through just you know human culture then you have more opportunities for those things to be selected and transmitted through the rest of the species so when related to this thing when you when a teacher teaches the student let's say he's a teacher with a very modern mind uh, does not follow the book so does he tell the student what he understood of the topic or what the student should know to develop his or her understanding um i think it can be both so quite often what you find when you're trying to like teachers are explaining things right like there's no magic sauce like they're explaining knowledge and they're trying to help however their explanation is designed like a good teacher is better at explaining things right um sometimes you find that the way of explaining things that makes sense to you does not work for explaining things to the people you're teaching right so um this is no different than like how you and I like act in daily life right like we're we're doing a little bit of it now right or we're trying to like share ideas and help them land in each other's mind in the right way so you'll phrase a question in a certain way and then I'm like is it this and you're like no it's this uh, and I'm like okay I get it now um so you know i i think 
the minds of children are not, or the minds of any human are not identical to the minds of the person sharing information with them. So what you're trying to do is gain a common ground at what kind of things are meaningful and contextual to them. If you're doing it right, some people just don't care. They're like, ah, here, you're going to fail if you don't learn it this way. So uh, you better figure out chemistry, right? But the good people are like, okay, um, like, let's say it's, uh, let's say it's math, very basic math. So I'm teaching my uh, four-year-old daughter very basic math right now. She has fingers and we have Cheerios in the house. <laughs> and so, you know, a good way to teach her math is not to force her to look at these numbers on a piece of paper that have no meaning to her. And she can't take those with her everywhere. Um, but she quite often has Cheerios close by or goldfish crackers. Uh, and she has fingers with her at all times. And so anytime where she ever encounters counting, she can use her fingers, right? Um, and she has plenty of times in real life where she's gonna wanna count, right? And now she has this little tool that exists on her hand that she can use to do it, right? Um, I never use my fingers for counting because I know how to not need that now. Yeah. So that problem's not meaningful to me. But to her, it matters a lot. So good teaching is really just grounding the explanation in context for her to where she can use it. Yep, that's, that's an incredible point. <laughs> I like the Cheerios example. Like that, that's good. Oh, thanks. So, because in school we are at a very young age when you are thrown out by numbers, like symbols, not even numbers, which you don't understand. That is a challenge in itself. Yeah, you can tell. Um, I I don't know if you followed, you know, how teaching is changing in the United States, um, but typically, like things pervade from the United States and they start spreading out through other cultures as well. So maybe you've seen this as well. But we have this thing called Common Core here where uh you know the the methodology of teaching changed towards like a i think a well-intentioned goal which is critical thinking right um so the way that math is taught they are trying to help with an understanding like a deep understanding of numbers but what ends up happening is that you end up with more of a numbers on paper situation instead of a counting on fingers situation um, and you end up with a lot of frustration so much so that like there are always like posts on Twitter of math homework that kids are getting where the adults yeah. don't know how to solve it. It's like, I don't even know what this means. Right. And that stands in the way of, of the gold there, which is to help them gain agency in the world. Right. Most people don't need to understand the mechanics of like exactly what it means to do like, you know, 40 divided by 10 or something like that. Right. <laughs> Like you, you can take it to a very basic understanding where you can say like you're taking a larger thing and you're putting it into equal piles, right? Like that's about the level of understanding you need. And then from that point, it's how can I help you actually do that as quickly as possible? The answer is a calculator, by the way. <laughs> um, but schools are very against like, you know, using yeah. the tools at our disposal. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think schools are just like, like most things, they're trying to continue their own existence instead of help people learn. Do you think there will be a time when uh, the old generation, so about after a century or something, when the woke people take over, they will, the education or the public schooling system will stagnate? Yes. Um, I mean, I very, I'm very optimistic, like in my bones, but optimistic, not in the idealistic sense, yeah. but in the sense that like, as long as we protect our engines of progress, that that we will continue to make progress and i believe that the public school premise is inherently flawed and very damaging 
And if we continue to make progress, then those you know flaws will eventually be sorted out and resolved. Um, that's the most philosophical reason. I mean, practically, you're seeing this today. It's just increasingly not working for people. And you know, that's from a schedule perspective. It's from a wellness perspective. It's from a learning perspective. It's from a safety perspective. Um, so asking if like there would have to be some fundamental change, which is totally possible. It could be that public education just radically changes to be more in line with enlightenment culture. But the problem with that is by definition, the idea of a school is a curriculum bundled with a physical space, right? Um, and that's where I think it just won't happen that way to where they'll just change because it would not be a school anymore. Like if it changes, it just wouldn't be a school anymore <laughs> because you, like you, you shouldn't bundle a curriculum in with, with that thing because it implies that you know the things that they should learn and that they agree with those things from the outset and that everybody should learn in this specific way. Right. So when I say it's wrong on first principles, that's why, like, you're not going to have alignment of interest and skills and, and that sort of thing, uh, such that it justifies a curriculum. The time when a curriculum makes sense is when everybody agrees to the end goal and wants to be there voluntarily. So um, Bloom Institute of Technology, which was formerly Lambda School, uh, has a very good reason to have a curriculum because their students want to be there to get a coding job. So they're coming in as non-coders. They want to exit as paid software engineers, right? So they are very like highly motivated to learn the material and they're there voluntarily. Lambda School, sorry, Bloomtech, formerly Lambda School, does not make money unless they get a job, right? So their whole business model is built on helping their students achieve the, the reason why they're there, which is to get a coding job. That is a very high functioning, in theory at least, it's very challenging to run that, but it's, it's a very uh, principled approach to how a curriculum should work. But again, it's a very specific domain skill. So learning how to code and getting, not just learning how to code, getting a job in coding. That is a very tight, specific thing that justifies a curriculum. Kids don't have an idea of what they want to do when they're older. They are, they are, I mean, they, they have a general idea, but most people change what they want to do. Um, schools don't help them accomplish it. There's no specific outcome designed for that purpose. Learning is very general purpose. And you have four points of, of, uh, conflicting interest, which is the institution, the school itself, the teacher, actually more than four, the teacher, the student, and the parent, right? And most of the time they all have conflicting goals. So it just wrecks the idea of having a curriculum. I think we touched upon the curriculum part in the last round too, a yeah. little bit. So what do you think, uh, how, how do you actually create a curriculum in a homeschool? So I am generally of the approach that we don't want to create a curriculum in homeschool. Um, again, it, it, a lot of this depends on what you mean. A lot of people, when they say curriculum, they mean pedagogy. So a curriculum is a like set of learning interventions that is fixed and that you put kids through, usually against their will. And again, Lambda School, has a curriculum, it is not against their will. So it is in that case, just a set of learning interventions that are, this is probably a better de uh, better definition. So instead of against their will, it's designed to achieve an outcome. So here's a set of learning interventions designed to achieve an outcome, right? Um, I think the best version of homeschooling is 
finding out what the kids are interested in and what they want to do, and then using the best tools at your disposal to help them do the things that they want to do. Now, some of those things that they want to do are not always expressed, and this gets into child rights, right? Like, it may not be obvious to the child that they want to overcome the, the struggle to learn how to read. And so people who differ on opinions of homeschooling versus unschooling, this is where they usually get uh, held up. And this, this actually applies more broadly for education in general. Like, should there be a situation where, you know, the teacher or the school or the parent, like, forces a child against their will to learn something, right? So a true unschooler, like a really true, totally principled unschooler, will not even, you know, put their kids through the process of learning how to read or do basic math because they are waiting for the problem set to arise, for that problem to become worth the challenge of learning to do it, right? So a truly principled unschooler will do that, and unschoolers have very good learning outcomes. Um, my kids, I was able to overcome the problem by explaining to them why they want to learn how to read. So that's like, I still followed the unschooling approach. It just took a lot of convincing and time to explain this in such a way that they wanted to learn how to read. I tend to think that that's the best approach because I'm anti-coercion in any sense, but it was very important to me to try to convince them to do that because the sooner they can read, the sooner they can work on and start solving more, more problems in reality. Um, so anyway, your original question was like, how does, I think, how does, uh, you know, curriculum, how do you design a homeschool curriculum? Um, my answer is that you should try to find out what your kids want to do and find the best tools to help them get there. Um, so it just depends on their age and their interests, I suppose, like, and their skill level. Yep. Actually, I was just looking up the student to the teacher to student ratio. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, the student to teacher ratio. So in US, it's actually 15 is to one average. Yeah. You think that is good or like it is worse than homeschooling, but relatively, do you think 15 students for one, uh, one teacher for 15 students is a good thing? Um, I mean, it, uh, like, like so many of my answers here, like there's kind of deeper underpinnings to answer that question. Uh, you know, 15 to one for a lecture, there, there's, there's not much wrong with it. It's definitely less effective than one-to-one. -one. So if you're just... If, if all things are equal and the same information is being communicated in the exact same way, it's better for that to be one to one than one to 15. And it's better to be one to 15 than one to 30, because when you present information, it's not going to land in brains the same way, right? Uh, this is what we were talking about earlier with how effective can you be at teaching? It's about how you explain things, but people receive things in a different way. There are general standards for better explanations, right? Like you can use metaphors and um, you can tell stories and you can talk slower. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's like a set of interests that are shared across like, you know, certain ages. So, you know, you're probably better off explaining things like within the context of Minecraft than within the context of like, you know, warfare. <laughs> for, for kids. Um, but you're still going to be off by some by some degree. Um, and so your variance of being off is going to increase the more children to t teacher ratio there is. So one to one is better than one to 30. One to 30 is better than one to 100, that sort of thing. Um but again, like the whole edifice is built on the wrong first principles in general. Like teachers yeah. are basically just like, you know, information mediums, 
right? So, so really, we should be designing better information mediums uh, than thinking about you know student to teacher ratios. That's that's an incredible point, actually. It's way deeper than most people actually think from at the surface level. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Uh, this is my job. I really care about this problem. So, uh, I don't know. Like I said, I'm motivated to try to get this right. So I hope that's the right explanation. Yeah, for sure. So now, what do you think is the future of education? And people who are working or starting an educational startup, not necessarily edtech, but any education startup, what would you like to tell to them about these situations? So it's, it's a bit tied into what I just said, which is a good bridge. Um, I think designing better information mediums is where we're heading. Um, like the, the promise of something like an AI tutor in everyone's pocket is that an AI tutor replicates the information medium in a better way of like a one-to-one -one tutor, right? So it has more, like way more data to call on. Um, it can more easily implement best practices, for example, using metaphors, that sort of thing. And it's always there whenever you want it, right? It's also more, uh, it's, it's faster typically as well, right? So like information can be shared and you can adapt the explanation faster in something like an AI medium, assuming it works, right? We're not there yet. So most, most AI tutors are not better than human tutors. There are a couple exceptions to that, but, um, but I think that's a really good starting point. Beyond that, you start dealing with technological uh, breakthroughs that need to happen, right? So at the moment, the best highest bandwidth uh, information interface that we have is the screen, which makes it really ironic that so many people are anti-screen, right? Uh, yeah. This is like way higher bandwidth than a book and people are freaking out about screen time for kids. <laughs> it's like totally backwards. I get, by the way, like it, what, I, what I mean by that is that it's a software problem, not a hardware problem, right? There's nothing, screens are inherently better at books, uh, better at information uh, conveyance than books, right? Cause they can just like do way more from a bandwidth perspective. It's just that some software platforms have uh, intentions that go against the best interests of their users, right? So, you know, YouTube's algorithm is designed for attention, not for, you know, information, and the you know increased knowledge and that sort of thing so anyway short tangent on on screens um things like Neuralink and brain machine interfaces i think are probably going to be the next big thing um so you know you go from like physical books to screens like that are this big to screens that are this big to screens that are this big to things that exist on your eyes you know like the oculus or apple yeah. thing and eventually that's just going to go in your brain Right, like that's kind of the arrow of progress, right? Is that computers are eventually just merging with, with humans, right? Uh, that is a very scary sounding future. Uh, and I'm not necessarily advocating for that future. That's a separate conversation, but I do think that's going to happen. Then at that point, you know, like the brain, it's called a brain machine interface because you're basically sending data between those two things uh, instantaneously without thumbs, right? Uh, so instead of tapping information onto a screen, you're communicating it in some way with the computer through your thoughts, and it can interpret that data uh, appropriately. Um, I don't know what exists beyond that. <laughs> uh, so I think that's like that's the the arrow that we're heading towards. I don't know if we'll get there in my lifetime. I kind of hope so. Yeah, for sure. That's incredible. I think I a lot of questions there. I don't think I have anything else. Is there anything you'd like to say? No, this is great, man. I really enjoyed it. Um, 
I, I think you asked some of the best questions I've ever been asked uh, about this. So thank you for the opportunity yeah. to dive so deep on this stuff. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm, I'm very glad.